right, we'll be in Proverbs chapter 7 this evening as we continue our, our study in this great book of wisdom. The best teachers in the world don't simply lecture and pass on information in a boring, monotonous manner. They find different ways to engage their students uh, to try to help them remember lessons. Maybe they come up with songs. Maybe they can tell stories. Maybe they can give illustrations. You may have had a teacher like that, or maybe you have a teacher like that who can just keep your attention and, and present truths in such a way that they just, you know, you, your heart grabs them and you, and you remember them. Obviously, Jesus was the best ever at that. He used different tactics and different methods to drive his truth home. One example is that he could have just simply said, act lovingly and neighborly to everyone. And that would have been true, but everyone there that day would have turned around and went home and forgot what he said. It was far more powerful and far more memorable to tell a parable in which the despised Samaritan is the hero. He is the one loving and being neighborly when the religious elite passed by the man who was obviously in need. Sometimes stories like that really help to drive home a point, and then out we're going to see that in Proverbs 7. Solomon is going to do something similar. He's obviously an excellent teacher as well, endued with, uh, endowed with, with godly wisdom, so it shouldn't surprise us. Multiple times, though, uh, at this point in Proverbs, Solomon has warned us against sexual immorality, and he's going to do it again. I mentioned last week, let's not roll our eyes, let's not fold our arms and think, I know that already, I don't need to hear this again. We do need it again or the Bible wouldn't repeat itself. But this time Solomon does, um, he does not simply lecture us. Okay, he's not the boring guy at the, at, at the podium saying, beware of immorality. Thank you for your time. See you all next week. He's going to draw us in with a very dramatic presentation. And he presents it like, like this is a story that he saw unfold. Like he actually witnessed this happen. And this drama is going to warn us of the dangers of sexual immorality and also remind us of several uh, of these wisdom nuggets that we've already learned. So hopefully it will help sink in some of the truths we've learned. We'll look at the entirety of chapter 7 tonight, and here's how we'll break it down. The first five verses, we're going to see Solomon's just initial encouragement. It's going to be very similar to some things we've already seen to the way he introduces his topics uh, so far. Then we're going to go into verse 6 through 21 where we're going to have this sad story. It's a very sad story of a young man who succumbs to a temptress. And then we can break that, those verses down a bit more. Verse 6 through 9, we're going to be introduced to the young man himself, to this victim. And we're going to see why he might be so susceptible to temptation in the first place. Then we move into verse 10 through 12 when we're going to learn about the temptress herself. And then in verse 13 through 21, Solomon details the tactics that this lady uses and we sort of see how the story unfolds. But then there's this, there's this turn that we should expect in verse 22 and 23, but the young man obviously doesn't. And that's that this is a sad reality. This young man is not headed for pleasure like he thinks. He's being led to the slaughter. He is on his way to 
ruining his life to death. The story has a tragic ending. And then over the last few verses, we'll see Solomon give us his final warning, which he does uh, often as we sort of see chapters kind of wrap up. So that's how we're going to break, uh, break the verses down. Let's look at the first five verses as we begin. And again, I'm reading in the ESV. And Solomon says in verse 1 of chapter 7, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. By now, we should be growing accustomed to seeing these sorts of things kind of at the beginning of a section in Proverbs. Uh, in Proverbs, he, he's addressing his son. I mentioned this last week as we go through this story. Since he's writing to his son and teaching his son, the temptress is a woman. That doesn't mean that men can't tempt women, that it can't work the other way around. We just need to understand who Solomon is, is talking to. Um, but we do see something a little bit different here that we haven't seen so far, and that's this phrase in verse 2, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. And the idea here is that we should view wisdom as, as precious and as important as the pupil in your eye, as your very eyesight. People value their eyes. We, we guard our eyes, right? If you're working, working on something, uh, in, in, a, in a wood shop, what do you put on before you start with the saw? You, you put on safety goggles. We don't want anything hurting our eyes. It's, they're precious to us, and wisdom needs to be that way. It needs to be something we guard, that we value, that is precious in our sight. And then we must not just listen to this, these words, but we need to obey them. We need to live out these wisdom principles. It's not enough just to hear it if we don't implement them. Just like it's not enough to look at the broccoli on your plate and not actually eat it. Sorry, children. I know we would all love to just look at the broccoli and be, you know, get all the nutrients and all the health benefits from it, but unless you internalize it, it's not going to do you any good. Wisdom's the same way, and it really echoes several things we, we read in the New Testament. James told us to be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you hear my words and don't obey, you're a fool. If you hear them and obey, he said, then I liken you to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. So hearing needs to be mixed with faith and with obedience, and we need to put this wisdom into practice. And Solomon uh, is going to tell his son that when he says, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. One author says it this way, the best advice is useless against strong temptation unless it is thoroughly taken to heart and translated into habits. I like the phrase this man used, taken to heart, because that's what Solomon told his son at the end of verse 3 there when he said, write them on the tablet of your heart. His son needs to have more than just knowledge of wisdom. It needs to be more than just academic things that, that he knows, but he needs to make it part of himself. He needs to internalize it. It needs to be part of us, not just something we study. 
And really, when we look at verse 4 and 5, what Solomon is saying is that we need a relationship with wisdom. Notice in verse 4, he says, you need to say to wisdom, you're my sister. You need to say to insight, you're my intimate friend. And then in verse 5, he mentions this forbidden woman, this strange woman, this adulteress again. So the, the contrast is easy to see here. We need a relationship with Lady Wisdom instead of the forbidden woman. And that's what Solomon is trying to tell his son here. And so and we went through those verses quickly, but they're very similar to some things we've already seen, uh, some similar types of encouragement. Don't just listen. Put it into practice. Obey it. Now in verse 6, we'll move on and we'll see where Solomon begins to tell his son this story. And again, he offers it like something he, he personally witnessed. And maybe he did. I can just picture Solomon walking around the palace complex one night, one evening, as he's able to overlook the streets of Jerusalem. And for some reason, his eye finds this one wandering young man going into a part of town he probably doesn't need to be in. And Solomon watches this man. And let's see what happens. Look at verse 6. And we're going to read this whole story, verse 6 through 21, before we kind of come back and break down some things. Solomon says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, and I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come. With much seductive speech, she persuades him, and with her smooth talk, she compels him. And we'll stop, we'll stop there and kind of go through these verses here, through this really sad story. So the story begins as Solomon introduces us to this young man that he has seen, and he labels him in verse 7 as among the simple. And this description is why he is so temptable in the first place. He is simple. We've seen this word before, all the way back in chapter 1, in verse 4, in Solomon's introduction, he mentioned um, that one of his goals of writing Proverbs is to give prudence to the simple. And what it means to be simple is that this person is very naive, very gullible, very open-minded in a negative sense. This is someone who's so open-minded, they're even open-minded to, uh, open to evil. They'll even try out sinful things to see if that works for them. They're curious about everything, even harmful, sinful, dangerous things. The person has no filter, no, no judgment or discernment. 
And so he or she can be easily enticed by wrong, easily talked into doing something wrong. Later in the book, in in chapter 14, Solomon says this about the simple. He says, the simple believes everything. And doesn't that fit this young man in this story? He believed every tempting thing the woman told him. We're never, we never read of any uh, back and forth, you know, any time the man said, hang on, we don't need to do this, this is not right. He is just never questioning her whatsoever. Never thinking about the consequences of these actions. He's simple. He is He is too open. But again, in the introduction, Solomon told told us that one of his purposes is to give that person prudence. We talked about it way way back in our our second lesson. Prudence has the idea of being able to reason, uh, being clever, or being shrewd. Not in a bad way, but being shrewd in a good way in that you can handle things and interpret things. This simple guy isn't able to do that. But if we will learn from Proverbs, we won't be that simple man. We won't be that simple woman because that's one of Solomon's goals is to take us from being naive and gullible and open-minded to having some discernment and some reason and some shrewdness in our lives. Sadly, this young man didn't have that. It's sort of hard to determine as the story begins whether the man intended to go where he went or if he was just wandering around and happened to to go into this district but either way I think there's a warning for us there if he was simply out for a stroll one night and then he found himself here let that be a warning of of how quickly and overwhelming and how powerful temptation can be sin is sin can be powerful and if we're so naive and unsuspecting that we're not guarding our heart We're in a dangerous spot. And this man could have very well been in that spot. I sort of lean, though, towards the idea that he went here on purpose. Since he is simple, since he is gullible and naive and open and curious, maybe he's heard about this part of town. Maybe he wants to check it out for himself because he's so open-minded. He wants to explore, try things out, see what this world has to offer. Surely it won't hurt to just check it out. It won't won't hurt to go down that road. It won't hurt to click that link and see where that website takes me. It won't hurt to look at that magazine if I don't buy it. If you have those sorts of thoughts, you're proving to be simple and lacking prudence. By lacking prudence, this young man has put himself in a dangerous situation. His open-mindedness has opened himself up to some temptations. In verse 10 through 12, we're introduced to the one who's going to to tempt him, the the temptress. And verse 10 is almost, if the story wasn't so sad, it's almost funny. Because we have the word behold. When you see the word behold in the Bible, we, we read over it like it's nothing. But behold is there to sort of shock you and, and make you, uh, you know, grab you and, and get your attention, almost like it's a surprise. Now, I think Solomon does this ironically here. 
because a wise person isn't going to be shocked at this type of woman knowing where, where, what part of town the man is going to. But this man's not like that. He's simple. Maybe he's naive, he's gullible. And so maybe Solomon is being ironic here that we should sort of expect a temptress. But for this guy who's just, you know, no discernment, maybe it shocks him. I, I'm not sure. But it is, it is supposed to grab our attention here. Behold, the woman meets him. And we know in verse 10 and 11 and 12, we know her intentions by the way she's dressed in verse 10. We know her intentions by the way she has this bold voice and movements in verse 11 and 12. And she is described in verse 10 as wily of heart. The word wily, some translate it as subtle, cunning, crafty, or secret here. Literally, the word means to keep or to watch or to guard. And so there seems to be this juxtaposition between her outward look and her inward look. Her physical appearance is very open, very inviting, very unguarded. Her heart is closed. Her heart is kept back. And, and, and closed off. And there may be two ways to look at this. I think both are true, and they both could be true at the same time. One is that perhaps this lady pretends to have his best interest at heart, but inwardly her motives are evil, and she wants to conceal that and keep that secret. And we know that's definitely true here. And we need wisdom to see that. We need that prudence. Listen, anyone who wants you to sin, no matter what they say to you or what they look like on the outside or how inviting it may seem, that person does not have your best interest at heart. But sadly, this young man can't see this disconnect between the woman's outward uh, invitation and yet her closed-off heart and her, and her secret motives. The other way of looking at this is, although... She's open to a physical relationship. She's closed off to having re any real connection with the man because her heart is guarded. Um, she wants no spiritual, emotional, intimate connection with him. The way we would say it in our modern-day lingo is just she's not looking for a relationship right now. And I read a commentator that made some good points um, about looking at it this way. This young man doesn't see that. He doesn't see this disconnect between the woman's appearance and her heart. But we need to be wise enough to see that. And beginning in verse 13, we start to see some, some of the tactics uh, that are used to tempt a young man. And part of it is nothing but lies. Okay, that phrase in verse 13 that she has a bold face when she says something, that's an indication that, that, she's, that she's lying. She doesn't care. She will say whatever it takes to to seize this man. And part of the, the brazen nature of her lie is that it actually has to do with religion. In verse 14, what she says with this bold face is, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. 
That's sort of religious, spiritual talk right there. Verse 14 is not easy in the Hebrew. Um, it's not easy language, and so there's some... Some people translate it differently. There's essentially two thoughts as to what this woman was saying, and I'll share them both with you. So verse 14. Is verse 14 an invitation to share a feast with her from the vows she has already paid? Okay, some, some suggest that she has gone to the temple. Uh, she has uh, offered some peace offerings, offered some offerings and some sacrifices in which she's able to take some of that meat back to her house. And that, that was something that happened in ancient Israel. And so she's telling this man, you know, we can have a feast at my house. We, we can have a fellowship because of what I was able to do at the temple today. And that, that may be what's going on here. The other idea is that she's not saying what she's already done, but what she needs to do. Um, it, so verse, verse 14 might be a claim that she needs money in order to pay a vow that she still owes. It really depends on how you translate it. Um, you may even have a, a footnote in your Bible that, that translates it a little differently. I read some good arguments for this second interpretation based on the context and some things that happens that she's not saying that she did worship today, but that she needs to and she needs some money to be able to fulfill these vows Man, good thing this young man came along just at the right time. But either way, the woman is using religion to draw this man in and sort of try to calm any fears he may have. If he does have any reservations, well, look, I'm going to go pay a vow or I've already paid my vow. You might as well come and enjoy the meal with me. So one author says she uses the pretext of religious devotion in order to assuage the young man's conscience about going to her. This is one of the devil's nastiest tactics. Tries to entice someone to evil while actually making them think they're doing good. Religion is one of the most evil things in this world, people. Not true religion, not true spirituality, but man's religion. Satan loves to get us to do wrong by making us think we're actually doing right. And that's what's happening in this man's life. But we need to be aware of anyone who uses God as a cloak for sin. There are people that do that. And that's what this woman does when she brings up these vows. And I want you to notice in verse 15 as she sort of moves on with, with, with her thoughts from the vows. She makes it seem like it is so wonderful that they've, that they've met. Look at the, So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I've found you, 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 you. She makes, it, she makes you feel like you're special. You're just the one I've been looking for. I needed you. You're so special to me. And with all the religious talk, God must have sent you to me. Surely God isn't in this or we wouldn't have met tonight. We wouldn't, we wouldn't feel this way about each other if God wasn't in this. 
We're not going against God. If he didn't want us to be together, why did our paths even cross tonight? People today still wrestle with those exact feelings and thoughts. This person understands me more than my spouse. God wants me to be understood. Doesn't God want me to be happy? This person makes me so happy. Just not my spouse, but he or she makes me so happy. God has to be in that. God is never for sexual immorality. Never. This simple man, he's not able to discern that. He's not able to, to see that. He's too open to temptation. And so in verse 16 through 18, we, we, we move on and we read just more of this temptation. The woman offers a night of pleasure in this beautiful house. But then in verse 19, if we weren't already, you know, um, taken aback by this scene, if we weren't already on edge thinking something's not right here, verse 19, she says, my husband is not at home. Whoa. She essentially promises him that nobody will know. My husband's gone. He won't be back for a month, not till the next full moon. He took a bunch of money with him. We've got time. Nobody will ever know. Sin is never secret. Never. What happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. I don't care what the commercials say. King David tried to hide his sin to make it secret. It came to light, didn't it? There's another story in the Old Testament where the Israelites were starting to conquer the promised land. And they fought the battle of Jericho and they won. But there was a man named Achan who took some of the spoils of that battle and he hid them. But do you remember that they were told not to do that? All of Jericho was to be first fruits to the Lord. It was their first battle, and all of it was to be dedicated to God. No one to take any spoil. But Achan thought he could get away with it. He took a few things. He hid it in his tent. But do you remember what happened next? They went to fight the little village of Ai. We don't even need all our, all our army for this one, Joshua. We'll take them easy. Ai defeated them because of Achan's sin that he thought was secret. But God knows everything. And so the Israelites lost men and they lost a battle. His personal sin led to that. Soon Achan was found out and he and his family were stoned to death. Sin is never secret and your sin affects other people. Nobody sins in a vacuum. Your, your wickedness will spread. It will hurt other people. It will affect other people. David's proof of that. Achan's proof of that. We have so many, uh, so many examples of that in Scripture. And we, we can think of so many examples that we know of in, in, in our day and time like that. But this temptress, though, she promises the simple young man that it won't hurt anybody. Daddy's gone. Nobody will know. 
This must be from God. According to verse 21, there's much more seductive speech. She persuades him. She compels him. Solomon shared this very vivid story with his son. And I wonder as his son heard this, what he was thinking. And what are you thinking as you read this story? Are you secretly jealous of this young man finding this woman? Do you think this is going to end just as the woman promised? This is going to be a great night. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be just like she described in verse 18. If you think like that, you lack God's wisdom. Because notice the turn in verse 22 and 23. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag or deer is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. This is not a young man headed for pleasure, but an animal being led to the slaughter. Like an ox, like a beast who has no idea he's headed to the chopping block. He's completely oblivious and foolish to this. The third line in verse 22 about the stag that's caught or the deer, um, it's really, really difficult Hebrew here. And some of the best Hebrew scholars translate it like this, and it's going to be very different from the idea of a deer. But um, a couple of commentators that are very um, well known for their Hebrews that they say, and as one bereft of reason to the restraint of fetters. You may, have a, you may have a footnote in your Bible that sort of gives an alternate uh, translation uh, even in, in verse 22. Um, my, my Bible says in a footnote, maybe as an anklet for the discipline of a fool. The idea of the fetters or a restraint, an anklet, that's, that's the idea. And so... Is it, a, is it a deer, you know, being shot with an arrow, or is it a, a, someone being led, you know, in chains? Well, I think either way we get the picture, um, and, and there may be this dual implication here. On the one hand, he is like an animal who's unaware that he's about to die because he is like this ox led to slaughter. He is like a bird caught in a snare. Um, maybe he is like a deer that's, that's, you know, just out in the meadow, and he doesn't know the arrow's coming right for his heart. That, that's a fine illustration here, or I guess right for his liver, I should say. That's what Solomon said here. The other thought, though, on the other hand, he's also like a fool, one bereft of reason. And he permits himself to be chained up like a prisoner of war, like a criminal, and, the, and just, just drug away by this woman. And he's okay with it. Verse 23 says, though, he, he, he doesn't know... Who, It'll cost him his life. Ultimately, this rendezvous will ruin him. Could be very literal, right? Last week, Solomon warned us about the jealousy and the rage of a spouse. People want vengeance when you wrong them, especially in this, this way. What's going to happen when that husband does come home in a month? Maybe there's someone in this young man's family that's going to be jealous or disappointed or angry at what he does. Or maybe... 
since this is in ancient Israel, maybe for once the Israelites actually carry out the law of Moses and stone to death an adulterer. Which is what was supposed to happen according to the law of Moses. It'll cost him his life. And even if the man doesn't literally die, it'll still cost him his life. That's what happened to David. This can ruin you. I was talking to a preacher friend of mine today. And we were asking, you know, what are you teaching tonight? And I was asking him, and I told him Proverbs 7, and we were talking about it. And He said he recently talked with a good friend of his, uh, or with a friend of his, um, who had committed adultery multiple times in his life. And he and his wife are now divorced. His kids can't stand him. They won't talk to him. They want nothing to do with him. The man lost his life. It ruined him. And my friend was telling me that as he was talking with this man, this man was almost almost presenting it like, woe is me. And yet me and my friend, not to be, you know, not compassionate or anything, but we said the warning's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Don't do this sort of thing and then say, woe is me. Look, look, look how poor and pitiful I am. You've been warned multiple times. So don't be surprised when the consequences fit the crime. Don't be simple. Be wise. Final few verses we see Solomon's final warning in verse 24 through 27. He says, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. In this verse, we see this sort of threefold um, process or this warning about what we need to do in order to guard ourselves from this, this temptation and this, this person. And much of it's things Solomon has already told us. The first thing, and I'm not saying these are necessarily uh, chronological order or anything like that, but the first is guard your heart. And that's in verse 25 when he said, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't even entertain this type of thing in your mind. Not in your heart, not in your imagination. Don't even, don't even fantasize about what it, might like, uh, what it might be like to be that young man. Don't even let your heart go astray. We spent time talking about that last week, didn't we? Solomon has already got to the heart of the problem, which is our hearts. He warns us again here. Don't even inwardly entertain sinful imaginations. Say, so what am I supposed to think about then? What Paul said to think about in Philippians chapter 4. Paul told that church, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, commendable, lovely, if, there, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. Think about these things. That's what our hearts should be occupied with. The things of God. So let's pray for God to clean our hearts to where our, our thoughts, our emotions, our imaginations are on His things, good things not on these evil things. Guard your heart. The next thing is quite literally guard your path. Watch where you go. 
Don't we sing the song, oh, be careful little feet where you go? That's wise. That's not just a children's song. There's wisdom in that. Solomon said, do not stray into her paths. He's told his son this before. Be careful where you go. Don't even go near her house. This isn't anything new. You don't have to prove how strong you are by putting yourself in a bad situation. Instead, prove how wise you are by avoiding it altogether. Much better. And then finally, something we've seen before is see the true reality of this. Really see what's going on here. This is not going to be a night that fits what she says in verse 18. If you look at this through the lenses of God's wisdom, we see that this is a dead-end road. It leads to Sheol. It leads to the grave. Solomon says to the chambers of death. That's where she's leading you. In chapter 2, he said something very similar. When we put the lenses of God's wisdom on, this temptress isn't so alluring anymore. She's an immoral person, or he's an immoral man. He's wanting me to do something wrong. Why? There's, that's not attractive if you look at it through the lenses of God's wisdom. And that's what Solomon reminds his son to do here again as he reminds him that she's, she has many victims. Her house leads to death. He even says in verse 26, the very last phrase, that all her slain are a mighty throng. That's military language. It may speak to how many lives she has destroyed before yours. It may also remind us that even the strongest man or the strongest woman can be brought down if they're not guarding their heart. It happened to David, people. David. The minute we think, I would never do that. We're in a dangerous spot because pride comes before fall. Always guard your heart with wisdom. All right, so let's, let's have our summary and our application here. You know by now that purity is the most mentioned topic in all of Proverbs. It is that important. And so we need to heed these repeated warnings, um, even as it is told from a different perspective here in chapter 7, as this story, as this drama plays out. Solomon let it play out in this dramatic fashion to help drive the point home. You know, it's one of those things where it's easy to, it's easy to maybe understand something, but then when it happens to you, it's different. <laughs> or if you can put a face to it, it's different. I think that's what Solomon is doing here. He's making it real. Immorality will cost you your life. So don't be the simple fool like this young man was. Let God's wisdom provide prudence. That's the whole, one of the whole goals of Proverbs. It's to give prudence to the simple. We need wisdom. But not just knowledge of it. Right? We began by talking about how we need to internalize it. How we need to obey it, not just hear it. We need to have a relationship with it. How do you do that? How do you have a relationship with God's wisdom? It's through Jesus Christ. 
The only way to have a relationship with God's wisdom is through Jesus Christ. He is wisdom incarnate. He is walking, talking, living, breathing, the embodiment of God's wisdom. I, I read one commentator say this about the first few verses of chapter 7 and all the internalizing of this wisdom and having the relationship with it. He said this. He said, this is Old Testament language for what the New Testament calls being born again. And I had to read that again because I was not expecting to read that. But I think he's right. Because the only way we can truly have a relationship with God's wisdom is through Christ. Is to be born again. We need that. We need Christ's righteousness. We need his forgiveness. Not just when we're saved, but then to continually work on us internally. To mold us to become the people that he wants us to be. And the more we become like Christ, the more our hearts are guarded from evil. And the more our hearts are guarded from evil, and the more our hearts are, are clean, then our lives should follow. It's only natural. If you feel like you're searching for some sort of love fulfillment in your life that you just can't find, is it that you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior and experienced the love that He poured out for you on Calvary? Nothing this world offers will provide you the fulfillment you need except God. You'll keep searching and you'll keep searching without Christ. But nobody on this earth can offer you a love like Christ. Love Him and His wisdom. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your word. And we pray that we will internalize it and that it will change us, uh, that we will keep it with us, that we will obey it. Father, we fail all the time and we are sorry for that. And we ask forgiveness. And we ask for cleansing. And we just thank you so much for your grace and compassion when we do fail you. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask that you'd go with us in our lives and protect us so that we can be good servants of you, so that we don't lose things you've given us. Most importantly, our witness for you. Lord, bless our church and be with us the rest of this week. Forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.